Hi, you're listening to Sundays at Sherman Bible. We're really glad you chose to join us today. The following message is from our pastor, Dennis Henderson. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've got a Bible near you, start finding it. If you didn't uh, bring one with you, there's one in a chair. And start heading towards the book of Romans. That's where we'll be for a while this morning. As you're turning there, today we conclude our series on margins. Next Sunday, two great things are going to take place in both services. Uh, One will be communion, and the second thing that will take place is baptism. It will be our first baptisms in our new building, both services. And we got a good crew for both hours to be baptized. Uh, You might want to consider that if you haven't been biblically baptized. And put that on your card today. But next Sunday, we're going to do those two things. We're going to intersperse uh, intersperse uh, those two activities, uh, looking at the last week of Christ, being that it's Palm Sunday, getting ready for a great Easter weekend coming up of four great services on Easter starting Friday night. So that's kind of where we're headed. Today, let's conclude margins. We've been there for about seven, eight weeks. Remember the definition? It's there in your notes. It's the space between our activities and our limitations. Because we all have limits. We have limits of time. We have limits of relationships. We have limits of money. And yes, we have moral limits. God has set those. And the activity of where we're living and those limitations, that space between there is our margin. Problem is, most folks move that margin right up to the limit of our time and our relationships, our morality, and many times we pass it in our money, don't we? We go over the limits. The result is, all of us know, there's stress, there's tension. There's the fact that when we get to those points of, of, of uh, going over the limits, our lives are miserable. And it's really all focused on us because we get self-absorbed. My time, my money, what am I going to do? And the next thing you know, it's all about you, and we've missed what God wanted us to have in our lives, and that is what John 10.10 says, a life that's fulfilled in Christ. And we do that by loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And we'll never have that ability to really love God, find the life he wants us to have, as long as we're at the limit and going over the limit. So we need margins in our life. We've talked about that for a number of weeks. So I thought the best way to conclude was try to answer a question. Why do we push the limits so much? All right? Take away activity. Take away the environment that kind of pushes us towards that. But what's way beyond just our environment and our society and our culture that pushes that? I think there's something greater And until we deal with what's the greater issue in our lives, we'll never be able to live below the limits and live in the margin God wants us to so we can love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And so today we're going to try to discover that, okay? So this is what we got to do. Today's a heavy day. Some heavy lifting today, all right? I'm going to lose some of you unless your neighbor keeps punching you. So neighbor, look at your friend next to you and say, I'm watching you, all right? Go ahead and say it right now. I'm watching you. All right? The next thing you say to your neighbor is pay attention. So say that right now, and you all agree together we're going to work on this one because this is going to get a little heavy here in the next few moments. All right? So let's go back, and let's start at the beginning and see how we got where we are today in the human race. 
All right? In the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, the first three chapters, we call it before the fall, when God created Adam and Eve, put them in a perfect environment, and in that environment, he was the center of everything in their lives. He walked with them daily, talked with them daily. They had this great relationship with God. It was a perfect world, perfect husband and wife, perfect family, no mother-in-law. My wife said the other day, she, I heard her teaching in Cuba. She's talking about that environment. She says they had a perfect husband, you know, Adam. It was the last one we've ever had, all right? <laughs> and uh, I walked in about that time in her teaching. So here's the deal. That was the environment. That was the world. But here was what was, took place. Because everything was centered around God, Adam and Eve had two things going for them. And that is, first of all, they had great security, because that security was in God and that relationship. Security being the fact that they felt this assurance, this safety, you know, this, this sense that uh, in them they, they, they were of value to God because they walked with him. Second thing that they had in this relationship with God was significance. The sense of having a, a real purpose in life, meaning. The sense that life had, had a sense of, of, of direction and, and it was satisfied because God gave me that significance by giving Adam things to do. He said, Adam, why don't you just name all the animals? All right. Well, in fact, Adam, everything's on your authority right now on earth. You can rule the, the, the animals. You can take care of the, fly, uh, of the, of the uh, agriculture. You can go out and, and pick the fruit. It's all under your control right now on this human planet. And so he found great significance. Okay, where was that built? In the relationship with God. Great security, great significance. The fall took place. God had put a res one restriction. Don't take of a, of a certain tree. Eve heard a lie. She believed the lie rather than the truth. She sinned. They took of the fruit, and now mankind fell. What we have to realize is how, what a catastrophe that was when that took place. It had catastrophic impact on all the human race ever since then. Because since that day when sin entered in, it's been in our DNA from day one. Okay? It's been handed down to us. Now, not conclusive, but let me give you four things that took place during the fall as a result of fall. Number one, we all know that our relationship with God was separated. It was marred. It was broken. Adam, who used to walk with God, now hides from God. And from that day on, every man... And woman, every boy and girl who's born is separated from God from birth. And God builds a bridge, which we'll talk about in two weeks, okay? So that separation is there between God and man. Second thing that took place is that for the first time in human race, there's interpersonal relationships that are scarred and damaged. Between Adam and Eve, for the first time, there's friction, tension, accusations. For the first time, you hear Adam say, that woman that you gave me, points a finger. All right? So that goes on. And I, my proposal, and you know the truth is, from that day on, every interpersonal relationship between men and women, sons and daughters, parents and child, has always been a strain. Do you agree? How many just have a perfect marriage, never had a problem, never had communication trouble? James, you, <laughs> Sandra told you to say that. Okay, now, here it is. 
We all have to work on marriage. We all have to work on every human relationship, whether it's our kids, our friends. It just doesn't come natural we, it, because there's a tension there that's in this DNA that's been scarred. Third thing that took place at the fall is that man and nature were severed. They also were separated. Adam used to go out every morning and pick the fruit with no trouble. He'd whistle at a lion, and the lion come over and lay down, and no trouble at all. But Adam goes out after the fall, the very first morning, he picks the first fruit that he normally picks, and all of a sudden his hand's bloody. He looks, and there's a thorn, and there's a thistle in it. He's never had that experience because God had said because of the fall, there'll be thorns and thistles, and now you'll work by the sweat of your brow. So the first time in his life he comes home, he looks at Eve, drenched with sweat, and says, I don't know if I can make it. Every man comes home every day, back here in his mind, wondering, I wonder if I can make it. I wonder if I can really get it done. Why? Because nature and man has been separated. For the first time, he looks over his shoulder, and he sees the lion chasing a lamb. He's never seen that before. Nature was scarred. Now we have predators. It won't be until the day when the millennium is set up and the lion will lay down with the lamb again. Nature's scarred. Fourth thing, our own self was scarred. Self-identity. Man was separated from himself. And in every philosophy class you go to in college, the first question you have to determine is, who am I? We look at our navels all through philosophy class, trying to figure, who am I? Why am I here? Why? Because man lost his self-identity back at the fall. Those are the four things that took place, catastrophic to the human race. What Adam had before the fall with God, he now doesn't have. Security and significance before the fall were almost like attributes. And now they're his greatest needs in his life. There is this deep void in Adam's life of significance and security because he's not secure. He's insecure. He doesn't feel significant, and that's down deep in his life, all right? Let's look at Romans and see how Paul describes some of this journey and the results of it. In Romans, if you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you and just turn to page 799, you'll find us. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, this is what Paul says. He says, put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Would we all agree with that? That in our natural self, we got some real weaknesses. He goes on. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body, he's talking to Roman believers, the church at Rome, looking back on their previous life. He says, in, before salvation, he said, you used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity. He says, in ever-increasing wickedness. He says, so now offer these parts of your bodies, offer them up in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness, the setting apart of your life for God. He says, and whenever you were slaves, and when you were slaves to sin, he said, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in what? Death. 
things you used to do brought death. Every time you went over the limits in your life, morally, time, money, it brings death, doesn't it? A death to a relationship, and on it goes. He concludes it in verse 23 where he says, for the wages of sin, the penalty, the payment of sin is death. Not just physical death, because that took place with Adam. It just took place a little later in his life. But it's spiritual death that we're separated from God. But then he gives us, but guess what? <laughs> but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because he died for us. And so he made a provision there. Now, what Paul is writing about is before and after Christ, what's going on in our lives before Christ. Now, go on to the next chapter, and Paul picks up a similar topic. Chapter 7, verse 19, gives his own personal testimony. He says, for what I do, uh, he says, for what I do is not the good I want to do. He says, the evil I do is not what uh, I want to do. This I keep on doing. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I, the new person in Christ who does it, but it is the sin living in me that does. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law. It's kind of working alongside, parallel with that in his life. He says, in the members of my body, waging war against the law in my, in my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And now he just cries out, what a wretched man I am. And then he asks a question, who's going to rescue me from this battle that's going on? In my body, this body of death. And then he gives the answer. He says, thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's an answer. Go over to the 8th chapter, verse 5. Continues along the same thinking. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds. Keep that in your mind right now. Circle that. Have their minds set on what the, nat what, what, uh, uh, what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Go one other passage. Let's go over to the First John. It's towards the back of your New Testament. If you want to turn there, First John chapter two. I suggest you look at this one because it kind of tells us what's going around us every day. It's on page eight sixty-two. If you're going to use the chair Bible, here it is. John tells us this. First John two verse fifteen. He says, "Do not love the world or anything in the world." Now declare what the world is. Let me clarify that. It's not this the earth the globe, the planet. He's talking about a system, an environment that's in this world, a culture. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, what's in the world? What's combating with God? The, the, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does not. He says, and what he does, he says, comes not from the Father, but from the world, from its system. 
and the world and its desire pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, we've read a lot of scripture, so let me compress it to the cliff notes, all right? Here it is. Paul started off talking about this whole thing of our sinful nature, talking about his battle, talking about our minds, as long as they're set on the worldly things, we'll never be in union with God and walk with him as we should. And then he comes over and John declares what the world is. And so the the idea is that the world, the system, does fuel everything about this DNA of our sinful nature and pulls us towards that because the world we believe is trying to, we think the world is trying to, to bring us life and security and significance and it never will. And so this battle that goes on from within is fueled from without and it's very easy now to think why we get to the limits. Because, why? We think if I get a little more I'll be significant. If I can just have a little more in my schedule, you know, I will be somebody. If I can have a few more things, I'll be secure. And on and on it goes. If I can press it and if, you know, if if Johnny will love me, then I'll be secure. And so we pass over the moral line thinking that that's going to be secure. So my proposal is this, that what Adam had with God Back in the garden that was broken and lost, deepest security and deepest significance that was lost has become the greatest needs in our life. If you go to college, you take basic psychology, you'll know in 1954, Abraham Maslow came out with what we call his hierarchy of needs. It's in a pyramid if you've seen it in your charts. You start down at the bottom, the physiological needs. These are the greatest needs of men, and he talks about food and just safety and shelter. Then he starts moving up. He ends up at the top of the pyramid with self-actualization. It's a great chart. I think it explains a lot. And I would agree. As you looked up that, I mean, those are basic needs. But what I want to say, beyond physical needs, in the soul and the psychic and the spirit of man, there's the greatest need of all, and that's to have security and significance. Those drive us. They drive us hard. And that helps push the limits in our life because we think Remember what he talked about setting your mind? We put our mind upon what the world fuels. Hey, if you get this car, you get this house, you get this job, you're going to be somebody. And so that drives us to press the limits. And today I want to show you a little model. That's what all the circles are about. You ready? Here's the circles coming up on your screen. Let me show you how this plays in your life. We're going to look at three circles, kind of like an onion peeled back of different layers of your life and my life. Not conclusive, of course, but at least shows three basic levels of our life. And then we're going to look at that little dot in a little later, what's way down in the middle of our life, way down the deepest part. So let's look at the first layer of our life. I call it the emotional layer. We're all familiar with that. We're emotional beings. When you go to see your psychologist, usually the first question that he'll start with, if you're new, he'll say, well, Tell me about your feelings. How do you feel? And then you reveal them. And you say, well, I feel fear. I'm angry. I'm guilt. I feel guilt. I feel depressed. 
we feel these destructive emotions coming out of our lives. And they're negative, and they're causing us problems. That is one pole of our emotional being that many times we've all dealt with. On the other pole are what we might call the positive emotions we can have. Love, joy, peace. We can have the spirit of long-suffering and patience and kindness coming out of our emotional being, which are the fruit of the spirit. So on one end... We have negative, destructive to our lives. On the other end, we have very positive things, which are the fruit of the Spirit. Two different poles in our emotional layer that can be there. And Paul's just kind of told us where to put our minds to get those others, the, the positive ones. The next layer of our life is what I call we peel back as the volitional area of our lives. And that's a word you might not use every day. So what is volition? That's your will. And out of that will is where you make your choices and your decisions. And every day we make choices and decisions in our volition, our will. You see, that's, out of that then comes what? It comes of the goals of our life and it becomes our behavior. From our choices, we form a behavior pattern of our lives. It is my strong belief that our emotional status is because of the choices we make. Okay? Because we choose certain choices, we end up with certain emotions. If we choose the decisions to follow the Spirit, we end up with emotions of joy and peace and, 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 and contentment. If we choose to follow and break the limits of where God wants us, we're going to end up with destructive feelings. All right? Now, I do realize, and I'm making this pretty simple for you that are a little more complex, there are chemical problems, clinical problems, that causes us to feel like that. But we're talking about if you didn't have chemical problems, imbalance, or anything like that, just in your basic psychic, the results of your emotions come from the choices you've made. Now, how do we make those choices? From our rationale. There's this rational layer of our lives. And the rational layer of our lives are where we do all of our thinking. And from our thinking, we begin beliefs. We believe certain things. And then we start to form images of a house, a car, a certain status, a certain romance, and we rationalize that this thing that I'm thinking about, or this object, is going to make me happy, content, and so we're going to go after it, and we make a choice to go after it, affects our behavior, our behavior affects our emotions, and we end up where we are, destructive or positive, depending on whether it's spiritual decisions, biblical decisions, or whether the decisions made by form by the culture of the world. Everybody with me? Now, on the negative side, the reason we get there and the reason we make choices that are wrong is because we base it on inaccurate information or what we call they're based on a lie. Eve, which was catastrophic to all of us, her decision was based on a lie, wasn't it? She heard the truth, but she acted on a lie of Satan, an inaccurate belief. And that inaccurate belief, we don't know how long it stayed out there on the table. 
We don't know if it was weeks, months, or years that she heard from the serpent and kept saying the, the, the inaccurate things, telling her a falsehood. But sooner or later, she believed it, formed a belief pattern, formed this image in her mind, that, wow, I'm going to be like God. And she did what? She acted upon it, made the choice to disobey God, and as a result, came out catastrophic to all of us, destructive decision and sin was now born into the human race. Everybody with me? What we're really looking for is life. That's what all of us want. And that's what Jesus promised us, didn't he? John 10, 10. I've come that you might have life. You might have it to the fullest. And we're trying to get it. But it got messed up back at the fall. And so we're trying to figure out, how do we get it? If we listen to the culture... It's going to give us one set of values. If we listen to the word of God, it's going to tell us something else. And depends where you listen and where you choose is whether you're going to find life. Now, see that little dot right there? Way up there in the middle? Let's put a microscope on that dot right there. And let's go way down inside our hearts, our psychic, our soul. And let's see what we got going. Remember what we had with God? What were they? Security and what? Are we paying attention to class? Security and significance with God. We felt valued. We felt a sense of being and meaning. We had that with God, but now they are our greatest needs in every one of our lives. Everybody wakes up every day, whether they, where they cognitively go through that, they understand, they feel down in their psyche these two needs. Security. And what's security? That from God, he loved us as, he, as, as we were. To be loved for who I am. Security. Significance. To be loved or to be respected for what I do. And that's why God gave Adam a job. A little marriage tip, according to Ephesians. These are the two greatest interactive things going on in marriage that we need. A wife needs security, not in her house, not in the things you buy her, not in all the junk. What she needs, her greatest security from her husband, is to be loved for who she is. The greatest need in a husband is to be respected for what he does. That's why when Paul talked about marriage in Ephesians 5, he comes down telling, he says, he concludes in verse 33. Chapter 5, verse 33, he says this. Wives, he says, husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husband. Bottom line, key to marriage. Every marital problem usually comes down to one of those two things. Wife is not being loved as Christ loved the church. And husband's not being respected for what he does. And when she's not being loved as she should be for who she is, she'll go look for it somewhere else. Things, things that she, false lies that she feels will make her feel secure. Other relationships. And she'll go looking for it every time. Because she's trying to be loved for just who she is. She doesn't want to compete with anything. A wife's greatest need is, I don't want to compete with your job. I don't want to compete with your hobbies. I don't want to compete with your secretary. I just want to be loved for who I am at all stages of our life. 
Young, old, wrinkles, no wrinkles. You know, when the body goes southward or when the body is northward. Either way, I need to be loved. Okay? Husband, greatest need of a, from a wife is to be respected. And if he doesn't get it there, guess what? There is somebody that will respect him. Somewhere, office, bar, somebody will respect him. Softball team will respect him. You know, hunting buddies will respect him. Somebody will. And so he's going to go out and find it there because those are the greatest needs of life. And the next thing you know, he's pushing the margins out of his relationships with his wife up to the limits and beyond whatever they might be, morally, whatever it might be, dollar-wise, because he said, by golly, I'm going to be respected somewhere. He might not cognitively think that, but that's what's inside. Everybody with me? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul, setting in Corinth, the most immoral city of his day, setting in Corinth, Paul writes to the church at Rome that we've been reading, but he, we back all the way to the first chapter and see the basis of what these other chapters are going to play out with. And notice in verse 19, this is what Paul says. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And notice what men do. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God, it's plain. I mean, it is plain as a nose on your face. It's plain to them. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. How did he do that? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, which we don't see, but we see the results of it, don't we? His invisible, uh, his invisible nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, but they neither glorified him, put him in his rightful place is the idea, never honored him for who he was as God, and they never gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, whether they're things we make in pagan totem poles or idols. It doesn't make it be images intellectually that we make today made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. You want to know what's happening in our society today? And all the immorality knows what it says. To sexual impurity and degrading of their bodies with one another. They, verse 25 is the key, exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and they serve the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Here's what took place. Back in the very beginning, Eve heard the truth. She exchanged it for a lie, verse 25. That happens, goes on in the exchange of our minds every day. The truth is there. We exchange it for a lie. We don't give God his rightful place. 
We don't give him thanks for what he's done, for who he is, and we put ourselves or something else upon his place. That's why I say, and I've said it for years, through graduate school, when I worked on my doctorate, I realized atheism is not an intellectual issue. It's not an issue of an IQ. You know what it is? It's an issue of who's God, me or God. It's an issue of morality. Atheists are atheists because they want to set the standard. They want to be the one who says what's right and wrong, and they want to live however they want rather than submit to a holy God who's already shown himself in creation. He's already shown himself for centuries who he is. And now we just have to decide, there is a God, and I'm going to find him in the truth, and I will submit to that, or I will become that God, and that's what mankind has done. And they're fools, though they think they're wise. Now, with that little part, let's go back. What drives the limits? Environment? No, it just fuels it. Upbringing, not necessarily. What drives the limits in our hearts that press us over all of these is this great need that we've lost back in the garden that can only be found again in Christ. And as long as we're looking out here with the fueling of the world and what we're hearing in the media, we'll never find it. We'll press the limits. But the great thing that we're needing is this great security to be loved and to be respected, and you only find that in God. That's it. Everything else will come up empty every time. I love the verses you go through. If you take a concordance, just start going through Psalms. There's some great verses about being satisfied. A couple of ones that I love is Psalms 145, verse 16, where the psalmist says, with your open hand, you satisfied the desires of every living creature. God's hand satisfies us. Psalm 17, 15 says, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I will be satisfied. I will be satisfied with your likeness. That's where satisfying comes, is in the likeness of him. Remember that old song we used to sing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world, all those things that are distracting will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells us of our history in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We had no relationship with God. We lived among the cravings of our sinful nature in verse 3. And then he comes to verse 4. He said, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, uh, he said, rich in mercies, made, uh, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Our only hope to live below the mar- uh, limits to live within the margin that God has planned for us is to comprehend his great love, his great mercy, submit and enjoy his grace and realize and until Jesus is really the one I love with all my heart, I'm always going to hit the limits because I'm trying to find my security, my significance and the things I have, the things I do and they'll always come up 
empty. Only Christ can really satisfy that need. Let's just sit where we are for a moment, bow our heads, and let's just reflect on what God has said to us. If you're a believer in Christ, you do have the opportunity to live below the limits. You do have the opportunity and the ability by the Spirit of God to understand that only Jesus will give me those things that I keep pressing for. And I've worn my life out trying to get. As you look to his face and his hand and understand his great love and mercy and grace, you start to learn to be satisfied. In fact, you'll never be satisfied in life until you say, you know what, if it's just Jesus, that's enough. Well, I have a big house, drive a big car. It doesn't make any difference. Jesus is enough. Only a born-again believer can understand and come close to understanding that. For some of you who've never started a relationship with Christ, been out on your own, there's a deadness in your life you don't understand, there's a seeking you're still going after until you submit to a holy God and understand that Christ died for you and his blood washes your sin away and trust what he did for you on a cross. Until that takes place, you're going to run just an empty race. And at the end, if it's without Christ in your life, you'll spend eternity away from God in hell, eternal damnation. So this morning as we reflect and as I pray, if you've never come to that point to invite Jesus Christ in your life because you're trusting what he did on a cross, I'm going to invite you to do that this morning. I'm just going to ask you right there to say, Lord Jesus, I understand you love me. You died for me. No way can I be forgiven outside of what you've done come into my life. If you'll do that, that will be the first step to living below the limit that causes you stress and living in the margin of God's love. And for you who are believers, would you confess to him today, I've tried everything as a believer trying to find satisfaction, but God, I realize it's Jesus only in his blood. May I learn to be satisfied in him. <laughs> Father, today we ask you that you will do what I can't do, and that is take truth, put it in our hearts, germinate it, and help us to understand that it's only in you are we satisfied. May you this day May you this day help us understand that only Christ will give us security, only Christ will give us significance, only Christ will satisfy. In his name I pray. Thanks for listening. For more information, feel free to visit our website at shermanbible.com or Call any time during our office hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 p.m. at 903-893-7795.